Excel Pro. Often gender and race-based pay disparities are kind of hidden from sight. It's seen as taboo to talk about pay. People don't feel comfortable talking about pay. Even for me, I'm constantly talking to people about talking about pay, and I still feel a little uncomfortable talking about pay. It's a kind of changing norm, but it's still a process. But at least in this way, workers hopefully will feel more empowered to talk about pay amongst themselves, which will help to uncover wage gaps that they may not have been aware of. Welcome to Excel Pro Employment Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Matt Crossman. We're thrilled to bring the Excel Pro Employment Law community together, and we're lucky to have Jessica Stender joining us. Before we jump in with questions for Jessica, let me say a quick word about the Excel Pro platform. Our mission is to improve your day-to-day job performance and make your career goals achievable. We want to give you the chance to learn from experts. That includes the ones we bring in to discuss specific topics like Jessica today, and it also includes all of you. Through the interviews we send to your inbox every week and through events like this, we hope to engage and inform and help you do your job better. There's much more to come on the events front, so keep an eye on your inbox. And thank you for being a member. And now let me introduce Jessica Stender. Jessica Stender, the Policy Director and Deputy Legal Director at Equal Rights Advocates, a leading civil rights organization. Jessica, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your background, what it's like having a career in civil rights, and then we'll examine pay discrimination. After that, we'll open it up for questions from the audience. Okay, now to your background, Jessica. You've been a paralegal for Friends of Farm Workers, an extern in the Ninth Circuit, you worked in private practice, and now you work for Equal Rights Advocates, a civil rights organization. That's a winding path for sure. I want you to take me back to the trailhead. When did you decide you wanted to go into the legal field, and how did you end up with such a diverse set of employment experiences? I grew up in a family with many lawyers, so it was not foreign to me, this idea of the law and specifically using the law to try to advance various issues related to social justice. There was never any pressure, but it was definitely uh, something that I was aware of in terms of ways to combat some of the injustices that I saw. And it really was working as a paralegal, as you mentioned, in Pennsylvania, helping to represent farm workers who are, of course, almost all immigrant and migrant workers from other countries, paid very low wages and often experiencing workplace rights violations and kind of observing just how pervasive those employment law violations were and really how much even as a paralegal I was able to do in terms of mostly getting people paid wages they were owed. And of course, this is ruling work and not well paid anyway, but to not get paid those wages that they were owed was a real injustice upon an injustice. And so seeing the way that law could be used to help those lower wage, kind of more marginalized workers was really what convinced me to go to law school and become a lawyer. And I always have focused on employment law from the worker side, plaintiff side employment law, though no one loved many employment defense lawyers and have worked with many great lawyers on the other side, but I've always worked on the plaintiff side. And as you noted, in a plaintiff side firm representing workers in class action cases, and then in a variety of nonprofits representing individual workers and also doing class cases. And that kind of had just reinforced my interest in ensuring that 
the laws that are in place are actually enforced for workers to ensure that they're getting paid what they are owed, that they are not being discriminated against or harassed. And it also led me to my current role where I mostly lead our policy advocacy and trying to strengthen laws, mostly in the realm of employment rights for workers. Your title is Policy Director and Deputy Legal Director for Equal Rights Advocates. What is your best Estelle Ramey story? Well, there are many, and I hope the listeners will indulge us just in a quick Estelle Ramey segment to get, kind of make things more interesting. But she really was a trailblazing feminist who kind of inspired me in all aspects of my life, both career and otherwise. But as you mentioned, she was an endocrinologist and a physiologist. So her area of study in the medical field was hormones. And so one of my favorite stories is she kind of rose to national prominence after she rebutted a kind of famous Democratic leader in the 1970s. This was in 1970, who had stated that women were unfit for important jobs such as president because of their, quote, raging hormonal influences. And so she, as you said, had a pretty quick razor wit, wrote an article that became pretty well known in the Washington Star, essentially breaking down this whole argument. And essentially, one of her quotes was, as an endocrinologist in good standing, I was startled to learn that ovarian hormones are toxic to brain cells. This kind of led to a big national debate that was hosted by the National Organization for Women between her and Dr. Berman, which all of us are still shaking our heads at Dr. Berman accepting that debate because she kind of eviscerated him. There was an article about the debate which said essentially Dr. Ramey figuratively mopped up the floor with Dr. Berman. So she was a really incredible thinker. And a lot of the issues she confronted then are sadly still apparent today, where you hear maybe not quite as bluntly, although sometimes as bluntly and directly, people in positions of power, including former presidents and others, implying that women are not fit for certain jobs because of their hormones or their gender. So unfortunately, some of the arguments that she was making then are really still relevant, today, but really enjoy getting the chance to share a story about her. So thanks for asking. Certainly. I think it's also relevant to your position now, though, because with that background, you seem almost destined to wind up in the civil rights world. How did growing up surrounded by such influences prepare you for the career that you've had in civil rights? And what advice do you have for attorneys considering a similar past? You're right. I think she and others in my family did kind of set the path for me. Big shoes to fill, but kind of inspired me to advocate for gender justice and work in this area. One of the biggest lessons she taught me and just countless other people, she really believed in mentorship and supporting other women and others, not just women, who wanted to also follow in similar paths. She really taught me the importance of mentorship and supporting people who want to pursue careers similar to yours or pursue social justice careers or otherwise. And also, she had no fear. For a lot of us, I think especially women, but really people across genders, it can be scary to enter a different field, to become a lawyer or work in a different type of field. So that kind of bravery, I guess, has been an inspiration for me to become more confident and sure of myself in my career and wanting to use the law for some change. One of the pillars of our platform here at Excel Pro Employment Law is the importance of peer-to-peer relationships. That's what this conversation is about, letting experts get together with other experts to talk about the issues that are important to them. How have peer-to-peer relationships been important to you? Peer-to-peer relationships and mentorship relationships have been critical for me to get to the place I am at in my career and life. And as I said, I really 
believe in passing that along and really value supporting people who are trying to enter jobs in law, especially those who might not have come from that type of background and it might be something new to them. We're going to jump now to pay. You were quoted in the New York Times article about pay discrimination at Vassar. You said, and I quote here, the problem at Vassar is really indicative of how deep and how pervasive pay discrimination problems are in our society. Those are strong words. How deep and how pervasive is pay discrimination in our society? Well, unfortunately, now over 60 years since the passage of the Federal Equal Pay Act in 1963, which of course prohibits discrimination in pay uh, between men and women, we too often see that women are still paid less than their male counterparts for performing the same or substantially similar work. We also see a, a very pervasive, persistent, pernicious, all the P's, wage gap that women still face. And of course, that wage gap it applies to women overall, but is much larger for women of color who face kind of intersectional forms of discrimination, which impact their ability to earn equal wages to men and to enter into higher wage jobs. The wage gap is still very real and very pervasive. You know, overall, the wage gap for women in this country based on 2022 earnings data, which is the most recent data available from the U.S. government Census Bureau. When you look at all earners, all women for whom there is data, so women working full-time year-round, part-time and seasonal. Women overall face a wage gap of 77 cents for every dollar paid to men. If you look at just full-time year-round workers, that wage gap is 84 cents. Those are the kind of two ways of looking at the gap. But either way, women face a very large wage gap. For women of color, that gap is far worse. So just as an example, for Black women, as compared to that 77 cents to the dollar for women on average, Black women on average, when you're looking at all of the women for whom there are wages reported, it's 64 cents to the dollar. So it's a larger gap. And then for Latinas, it's just 52 cents to the dollar. So to answer your question, yes, the wage gap is pervasive and unfortunately exists across industries, across education levels, across wage levels. And it's something that we are trying to combat in a variety of ways. Excel Pro. As you mentioned, the Equal Pay Act was enacted in 1963. At the rate we're going, wage parity won't be reached until 2059. That's 96 years. What lessons have you learned working with equal rights advocates about what companies are doing wrong that other companies can avoid? I think there are a lot of steps that companies can take to try to prevent and also rectify gender and race pay gaps. And there are a lot of companies that are actually trying to take these types of proactive steps and putting an importance on and, and prioritizing, trying to advance pay equity and close gender and race wage gaps. Some of them are required to by law, stronger state laws. In addition to that federal law I mentioned, there are a lot of studies that show that when companies do take proactive steps to promote and advance pay equity, the research shows that these are all companies in which workers are happier, there's less turnover, so in addition to complying with the law and doing the right thing, it's good for business to proactively address pay equity. So some of the steps that we see as really important that some companies take and others should take are doing audits. And so a lot of times we know that gender and race-based pay disparities are sometimes hidden from sight. 
definitely from workers, but sometimes even employers may not be, especially in large companies, may not be aware of pay disparities within their companies. And so doing a pay audit and really just looking at your pay data and looking at it broken down by race, gender, ethnicity, and also how people are spread out among job categories can really provide an important kind of bird's eye view and show where there are gender and race pay disparities. And really importantly, where there are patterns of what we often refer to as occupational segregation, where women and people of color are often concentrated in lower paying jobs and underrepresented in higher paying jobs. We have problems of pay discrimination, where women are being paid less than men for performing the same job or substantially similar work. But another big contributor to the wage gap is this issue of occupational segregation, where women are concentrated in lower paying jobs and not given access to higher paid positions. So when an employer is aware of those trends, they can both close the gender and race wage gap if they need to, if there are those gaps, but also maybe make changes to their recruitment or promotion practices to ensure that women and people of color are employed in all wage levels and not concentrated in lower paying jobs. So that's one, I think, really important step. Another one, which is now required in some states and and cities is not asking applicants about prior salary. Given the existence of this persistent gender wage gap, which is well-documented through U.S. Census Bureau data, this kind of very common for a long time practice that employers engage in of asking a candidate, well, what did you make in your last job? Which I know I've received in pretty much every job I've ever been in, including for social justice organizations. Uh, It just was a very (laughs) common and still is often a very common question not necessarily always for with bad intentions, but it has the effect of perpetuating these wage gaps and really enabling pay discrimination to follow women throughout their career and compounding it over time. Some companies have decided proactively to just institute a ban across the country, regardless of whether it's prohibited or not, recognizing the way that it perpetuates pay discrimination. So those are a few of the steps that we would recommend companies take. There's more, but I'll pause there. In an article in Ms. Magazine, you called salary history bans pay transparency's new frontier. What do employment attorneys and HR execs need to know about the growing trend of states adopting salary history bans? I think the first thing to be aware of is that the laws that address prior salary inquiry vary from state to state and and locality to locality. The common trend that a lot of these, not all laws have, is that they contain provisions that say an employer cannot ask about prior salary or rely on prior salary when setting compensation. However, all of the laws have an exception that if the candidate wants to provide that information, you know, they think that they will, that will help them in their negotiations, then of course, it's on the table and an employer then can discuss it and rely on it. That's kind of consistent throughout these laws. Most of the laws do say that an employer can ask about salary expectation of a candidate. So that's kind of another aspect of these laws to note. But those are kind of the high level pieces of many of them, but they do vary. So you'd want to look at your specific provision. One of the big challenges, whether it's salary history bans or pay equity or pay discrimination, is that the laws vary from state to state. And especially now, post-COVID with a hybrid work world and a remote work world, a hiring manager, a hiring executive is, let's say, living in Texas, hiring someone from California. That's a whole bunch of different states to try to keep track of. So my question is, usually 
New York and California are out front on employment law issues. Are New York and California the most employee friendly? There's no doubt that New York and California do have more robust protections on the books against pay discrimination and ensuring better protections to ensure pay equity. Some of the other states that have in recent years passed some pretty robust pay equity and other related protections are Colorado just passed a pretty robust law. Washington state is another state that's pretty active in this area. Oregon. So there's a number of states that have passed, in some cases, kind of really broad, almost omnibus laws that really address a lot of issues related to pay equity and combating pay discrimination in a variety of ways. Some states, though, in addition to those, have passed more narrow but still important protections. So some states, for example, have just passed a prior salary ban, which is an important first step. Some states have passed salary transparency laws requiring the posting of salary ranges or requiring employers to provide salary ranges under certain circumstances. Some states have passed laws that expand their equal pay protections to not just apply to equal pay related to gender, but also to other protected classes. So at the federal level, the Federal Equal Pay Act just applies to pay discrimination between men and you know people of opposite sex. Some states have gone further here in California, we've added race and ethnicity. Some states have added all protected classes. So there's a variety of different laws that have been passed in different states in this area. I want to jump in on pay transparency, which you touched on in that answer. Decades ago, we knew less about this because people didn't talk about what they made as much as they do now. You didn't ask somebody. And if you did, it was like talking about politics or religion. But with pay transparencies now, in some cases, companies have to disclose what they're paying, they have to disclose salary ranges. Has the increase in pay transparency helped at all to end pay discrimination, or has it just made it easier to find that pay discrimination? There's a few different answers to that question. First, when we talk about pay transparency protections, there are a lot of different aspects of pay transparency. One important part of the pay transparency kind of bundle of laws is in restricting employers from imposing what we often refer to as pay secrecy rules. And so it is common for an employer to impose a rule that says employees cannot discuss or disclose wages. That is, I would say, unlawful under the Federal National Labor Relations Act. But some states have proactively addressed this by passing further protections to explicitly say employers cannot impose these types of pay secrecy rules and cannot discipline or retaliate against workers when they talk about pay. And that's an important piece of the pay transparency discussion because so often gender and race-based pay disparities are kind of hidden from sight. That's seen as taboo to talk about pay. People don't feel comfortable talking about pay. Even for me, I'm constantly talking to people about talking about pay and I still feel a little uncomfortable talking about pay. It's a kind of changing norm, but it's still a process. But at least in this way, workers hopefully will feel more empowered to talk about pay amongst themselves, which will help to uncover wage gaps that they may not have been aware of. But the second kind of bucket, which I know is getting a lot of attention now because it's really increasing kind of in momentum in the States, is this salary range posting requirements. Some of these laws require employers to include the salary range in, in all job postings. Some states require employers to provide the salary range for a given position to a candidate under certain circumstances, if they ask for it, if they've had an interview. So they kind of vary. But overall, the idea is to give candidates and also existing employees 
more information about what the possible pay range for a given position is to try to, one, uncover if they may be being underpaid and or potentially negotiate higher pay where they may not have had the the confidence to do that or the information they needed to be able to do that before. The laws are relatively new. We need to wait a little longer for some of the research, but some of the studies that have been done since they've been passed have shown that in states with pay transparency laws, there has been an effect of a slight closing of the wage gap. And specifically, I put the prior salary bans in that pay transparency bucket, and they've been on the books a bit longer. There are a few different studies that actually show that in states that have implemented these prior salary bans, there has been the intended effect of closing gender and actually racial wage gaps. So I think we need a little more time to look at the effect of all of these laws, but the initial results are showing that they are having the intended effect to close gender and race wage gaps. Excel Pro. All right, now I'm going to pivot and jump into the audience Q&A. What prompted you to make the jump from private practice to a civil rights organization? And did working in private practice help once you got there? Working at the, a private plaintiff side firm was great experience because it was a class action firm. So really understanding the power of class actions to try to address discrimination and wage theft in a comprehensive way and in a way that has lasting impact within companies was a really important step in my career path, both just to learn class action law, but also really observing the kind of broader effect you can have when you bring a class action, both achieving restitution and justice and compensation for a broader group of workers, some of whom may not have even known that they had a claim, but also often ensuring that there was some form of programmatic relief at these companies to ensure that there were not ongoing issues of pay equity or pay discrimination or other forms of discrimination or wage theft. So that was an important lesson for me going back to the nonprofit world, which just kind of felt more like home because <laughs> I had worked in nonprofits before becoming a lawyer and in the nonprofit realm still do class and collective impact cases and have used that experience from the private side to do those same types of impact cases in the public interest realm. Who in your mind needs to pay attention ASAP to narrow the pay discrimination gap? Is it senior executives? Is it hiring managers, legislators, other, all of the above? I think it's really all of the above. As I mentioned, the wage gap remains persistent and really harmful for women, particularly women of color. When you think about women earning less than their male counterparts, and again, much less in the case of women of color, that not only harms their ability to pay for basic necessities like rent and food, diapers and bills, but it also keeps them from being able to invest, to put away for retirement, and it contributes to overall higher poverty rates for women and families. And so it really is not just a women's issue, but a issue for families and really communities. And because there are so many contributors to the wage gap, there is pay discrimination. So women being paid less than men, for doing the same or substantially similar work. There is occupational segregation, women, uh, particularly women of color, being concentrated in minimum wage and low wage jobs and industries, but then even within companies being concentrated in those lower paying jobs. There are issues of just straight up bias and discrimination into to hiring and who's being hired where. So because there are so many contributors to the wage gap, it really does require 
employers to take proactive steps to root out pay discrimination, to close gaps, and to take proactive steps to ensure that they are preventing pay discrimination from continuing into the future. It definitely takes legislators to keep passing stronger and more robust laws to better protect against pay discrimination and other aspects as well. You know, harassment and sexual harassment and other forms of harassment and discrimination serve to push women out of jobs, which of course affects their income and economic security. So we need more robust laws in that regard as well. And then just more generally, I think it's just important that the broader public be more aware of pay discrimination and pay equity. And I do see that it is becoming more discussed in the mainstream. And that's a good thing because the more people talk about pay equity and and the fact that we still have this ongoing gender and racial wage gap really is what it's going to take to continue pushing for more momentum in the legislative level within companies. And I think we are seeing more and more that clients and consumers are demanding more of the companies that they work for and frequent, which is a good thing. You know, we have investors putting more pressure on companies and shareholders to take proactive steps in this realm. So I think we're on the right track, but it will take a lot more effort to truly root out gender and race-based pay disparities in the U.S. Let's pretend that I'm an in-house lawyer and I give you a call and I say, Jessica, tell me how to put guardrails in place It's a remedy if I find pay discrimination and avoid it in the first place. What can I do? I think the first step is what I mentioned earlier is doing a pay audit. That is now required in two states (laughs) that companies, larger companies in California and Illinois, to some extent, have to conduct pay data audits and then report their pay data to state agencies. But even if you're not in one of those states, I think it's really important that companies conduct a pay audit. And there are, of course, a lot of external companies that can help with that and are trained in how to do that so that employers can just, one, be aware of what their pay situation is. We often talk about the fact that you can't fix what you can't see. So number one is being aware of where there are pay disparities. And then, of course, taking steps to close them. The famous case of Salesforce was that Mark Benioff conducted a pay audit and found that there were significant gender-based pay disparities and, and invested a lot of money to closing them. So I think that's number one. And then really doing a review of what the internal processes and procedures are for recruitment and hiring to ensure that it is a process that enables women and people of color and others who might not be considered for higher paid jobs to be considered, ensuring that you have objective processes for hiring managers and others to set pay. So that kind of implicit, well, of course, explicit, but also implicit bias doesn't kind of creep in in terms of what people are being offered for pay, which we know, despite best intentions, there is a lot of implicit bias that affects the pay that is offered to women and people of color. So really implementing these types of processes and objective criteria is important. And even if it's not required in their state or jurisdiction, posting salary ranges and providing existing employees with salary ranges is an important step that employers can take to help ensure that employees have the information they need to assess what they're being paid or what they should be getting paid. Two more questions for you. One about COVID and then one about your day-to-day work. In the midst of COVID and and even now to today, there's been a a great resetting in what we think about work and what demands we make of work and what demands we will allow work to make for us. My presumption would be that you might see a blip in the data that people would say, you know what, I'm not taking that. You're going to offer me what I'm worth. Does the data show any of that? Has COVID helped at all in this? One silver lining to the COVID pandemic 
is this issue of employers being made aware that workers are able, in many cases, to work from home or have a more flexible workplace and work schedule and still be able to produce to the same level, maybe even be more productive. Now, of course, this is not possible for a large number of workers, and that's just an unfortunate reality that for many, especially low-wage workers who maybe work in the service industry or other industries, don't have that luxury, which is a whole separate discussion. But within the industries where workers can do their job remotely, I think employers really have learned that you can, in fact, give workers flexibility and they can still do their jobs well. And this is important for all workers, but especially caregivers. So people who are taking care of children or elderly relatives or disabled relatives who are still disproportionately women, having a flexible workplace where they can work remotely or have flexible schedules really is a critical aspect of ensuring that caregivers or disproportionately women are able to continue working. And so I think that realization on the part of employers has been really key. We know that there has been pervasive discrimination against caregivers. I'm hopeful that employers have seen that, no, you can be a family caregiver and still do your job if you're given some more flexible scheduling and or accommodations that enable you to both do your job and care for your family. All right. So final question. Let's plug equal rights advocates for whom you are doing hard work on this topic day in and day out. When does an organization like equal rights advocates get involved and what does your day-to-day workday look like working there? Wow. Day-to-day workday, it really depends on the day. In my role, I am leading our policy advocacy. So a lot of meetings with legislators and staff and community advocates, but we really believe that all of our work at Equal Rights Advocates is led by and grounded in our clients and our community partners. And so all of the work we do, whether it be litigating cases or passing laws, is always informed by the issues that we are seeing on the ground and hearing from our clients or our community partners about what is needed on the ground so that it just infuses the work that we do every day. I would encourage anyone who's interested to check out Equal Rights Advocates website because we have a lot of information about the type of work that we do for women and people of other gender identities and girls and other students who have experienced issues at work and at school. And there are a lot of ways to get involved with our work if you'd like to support us and or be part of our action team. All of that is on our website for anyone who's interested. Plug the website real quick. Equalrights.org. Okay. On that note, thank you again to Jessica Stender from Equal Rights Advocates for joining us for this enlightening and entertaining conversation. And thanks again to all of you for being here and being a part of the discussion. transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro Employment Law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleague in any sector of the employment law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-ACCEL. Excel Pro Employment Law is powered by Kaplan. Oh.
The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kulkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jarrah Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Neil Ungerleiter, and me, Matt Crossman. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.